0: this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. It's fly day. That's according to senior producer Lydia Brown. So today, where we live, we're focusing on flies. We'll find out why these insects are valuable to scientists and to our environment. Coming up, we'll speak with Dr. Erica McAllister, author of The Secret Life of Flies, also a curator at the Natural History Museum in London. She loves flies. House flies, horse flies, even mosquitoes. She'll join us to explain why we should appreciate flies too, that conversation coming up. First, fruit flies, rather, are a nuisance in your kitchen, but scientists have been studying them for decades. Fruit fly research has helped advance biology and the understanding of genetics. My guest has studied fruit flies for more than 15 years. Dr. Stephanie Moore is a lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School and author of the book, First and Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. Joining us today from the studios at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you. I understand you have a Connecticut connection. You went to Wesleyan University, and you write uh, in your book that at the time you had no interest in working in a lab that uh,
1: did fruit fly research. Tell us why. Yes, that's right. Um, when I was a freshman at Wesleyan, uh, I was certainly interested in biology and, and learned a lot about fruit fly research while I was there. But uh, I had a work study job as a dishwasher for the Department of Biology, and uh, that gave me a, an interesting perspective on how to judge a lab when I later decided to. to um, stop that job and, and work in a lab, um, which was, what do the dishes look like? Uh, and, uh, you know, I was a teenager at the time. I'm looking at the dishes and the fruit fly lab dishes were were pretty boring to me. <laughs> they were bottle after bottle that they were using to culture fruit flies. Um, the bottles were empty and I was just giving them a, a, a sterilization kind of step. So it wasn't a gross out thing. Um, but it was one after the next of bottles that looked the same and other labs had, you know, variety of dishware. It was, with flasks and big columns. And somehow that was a reason for me to judge. And I joined a different lab. Um, But then in graduate school, eventually uh, landed in a a fruit fly lab that, uh, you know, and, and never stopped.
0: So what made you make that decision in grad school where you joined this fruit fly lab?
1: Uh, well, again, a kind of you know, as things go, and we're we're young and trying things out. I, I did a couple of rotations um, in different labs and uh, didn't find a fit, and did a kind of last ditch effort um, it, with someone who had had as an instructor and enjoyed, um, and uh, joined that lab and just immediately took to the work and the flies and the project that I was working on at that time.
0: So when we talk about fruit flies, many of us are are aware of the insect that we see them buzzing around in our kitchen. Uh, But you write that fruit flies, while they're true flies, they're not actually true fruit flies. Explain that for us.
1: That's right. So the entomologists uh, give us a little flack for uh, for 100 years of calling them fruit flies. Um, we should be calling the Drosophila species that we work on more of a vinegar fly. And the distinction would be that true fruit flies are the kind of uh, crop pests that we think of like the med fly or other uh, species that lay their eggs in developing fruit. And so they destroy the crop value of that fruit. Whereas the fruit fly that we study in the lab, the Drosophila fruit fly, um, is, is much more polite. It waits until the fruit is uh, ripe and rotting. Um, and so it has tastes like like we do it it likes ripe fruit and uh, has a a bit of a taste for the alcohol fermentation process that happens uh, with overripe fruit so um, that's the distinction between the true fruit flies that are that are crop pests and lay in in developing um, fruit and then the you know these vinegar flies as we really should be calling
0: them. So when we look at uh, the use of fruit flies in labs again for more than a century, according to your book, why are they ideal candidates for scientific research? What is it about them, and what have we been able to learn from them?
1: Well, the the answer to what we've learned is just uh, astounding. You know, I, I that's basically the focus of the book, and even so, lots of examples you know that, that didn't get in. Um, but in terms of the reasons why, they're they're pretty straightforward reasons. They multiply. Um, uh, by huge numbers. So you know a single female in a few days can lay, lay hundreds of eggs. So you're doing genetic research. That's very powerful. Um, and then again, for genetic research, the life cycle and lifespan are important. So the life cycle of a fly um, is about 10 days. So it can go from being an egg to laying its own egg in about 10 days. So the number of you know, years that it would take to get to a you know, huge number of generations is wildly different from the equivalent study in, a, in, an, in an animal with a longer um, life cycle. And then the lifespan is about two to three months, um, which I think is a little longer than most people expect for a little fruit fly. Um, but they that gives us a window of time that makes it appropriate to study adult behaviors and adult um, activities and aging um, because you have this kind of sweet little window that's long enough uh, that you see aging changes, uh, for example, but not so long that you know it takes forever to do those uh, experiments. So it's a ba- about a day uh, to a year kind of between the fly and the human.
0: So they're an efficient uh, lab uh, subject, so to speak, uh, easy to culture in a lab. They don't require a lot of space and food. And as you mentioned, they develop rapidly and their lifespan are all uh, positive attributes for the researcher uh, when you're doing your work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in the early days, in the 19-teens, they were feeding them uh, bananas and would have shakers of dry yeast to sprinkle on the bananas as food for them. And nowadays, we we use a very cheap... Uh, mix that's basically mostly cornmeal and a little bit of molasses or another source of sugar. So very cheap, very easy to have many different genotypes um, in the lab. Um, But all that could be true and it wouldn't necessarily, you could teach us about the fly and teach us about biology, but what about learning about humans? And so that's where the fly um, is like other animals in that we've learned in the post-genome era where we look at the genomes and can see the genes, we've learned that the genes are really very similar. So you you might have thought that comparing a Fly to a human would be like comparing a toaster oven to a car. Um, You know, some of the parts are similar, but basically they're different entities. But, in fact, at the level of genes and the way those genes um, interact with one another, it's much more like comparing a 1970s or 60s car to something off the lot now. That 60s, 70s car doesn't have a computer running it. It doesn't have your GPS system. But the engine is basically the engine, the chassis, the chassis, the tire, the tires. These essential, meaningful things that are, that are sort of at the core of being an animal are very much the same at the level of genes. And so that then becomes, you know, a reason that they're still relevant today, I would say. So you're
0: saying that fundamental parts in flies and humans are very much the same. To a
1: surprising degree,
0: yes. Uh, I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Stephanie Moore. Uh, She's a lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School and author of the book First and Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. Joining us today from a studio at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So let's talk a little bit more about the similarities uh, between the fruit fly and humans. Uh, Can you you walk
1: us through some of what uh, researchers have found? Sure, absolutely. So we can start with a, a very early example. So in 1915, there was a woman named Mildred Hoag who was working in the lab of um, T. H. Morgan, who's considered the founder of our field, um, and she published a paper in 1915 about a gene, uh, what we now about a mutation called eyeless. We would now call the gene eyeless, um, and she noticed these flies basically don't have eyes or they have reduced eyes, uh, and they are otherwise look like normal adults. Um, and by 1995, we were able to the researchers were able to, to identify the DNA sequence of the eyeless gene, um, and what they identified was that it's a transcription factor, so something that binds to DNA, and they identified a uh, similar genes in, for example, in the mouse, um, where it's called Pax6, and the human equivalent of this gene is also called Pax6, and as an example of just how similar things are, the um, mouse eyeless or the mouse pack 6 gene can be put into a fly and it will replace the function um, of eyeless in, in flies that are mutant for eyeless or missing their own eyeless copy. So it shows you just how equivalent they are in terms of the actual functions. Um, and those turn out to be uh, genes that are in, involved in sort of a master controller, uh, so that one gene is able to turn on a whole program of activities that then end up with an eye. So another thing that was recognized in the 1990s was that if you take eyeless and you force it to be expressed in the fly, say, on its wing or on its leg, you can actually see eye structures or eye-like structures form. So it to- tells us that, that, that there, you can have a single gene that, that turns on a whole program of activities, which was, you know, a, an exciting um, result to see. Uh, You mentioned uh, the early
0: 20th century. I'm curious about when
1: fruit flies were first
0: started to be used in a lab. And you talk about someone named T.H. Morgan. Tell us about him.
1: Yeah, so he is considered the founder of the field. Um, And to best of my recollection from the history books, he, he someone else recommended to him that he start working on flies. Um, I think I gather at that time, it was common to have a few different organisms, you know, kind of living in your lab and, and doing different studies. So he started working with flies. And um, by 1910, he published a, a pu- publication about the white gene. So there are a couple of different tales um, about how white was identified. But basically, he someone saw a set of flies that instead of having the normal dark red eyes, they had colorless or white eyes. Um, And within about a year of identifying it, Morgan was able to um, use those flies to learn something exciting about um, the mechanisms of inheritance. So this is after Mendel and Mendel's rediscovery, and people were trying to understand how genes really work and what um, what, what they are as entities and, and what, what they're capable of and some of the properties of genes. And so this work was really seminal. Morgan ended up getting a, a Nobel Prize for that work. Um, and he also surrounded himself with talented undergrads and graduate students who did other studies and, and things really grew from there. You write that uh, that using the Drosophila was a bonanza to
0: geneticists. It helped reveal relationships between genetic traits and chromosomes. Tell us more about
1: the genetic mapping and the undergrad that helped that um, become more clear. Sure. So as I said, Morgan surrounded himself with a a bunch of smart folks, um, and they all started fly projects in his lab. Um, And so they were were looking at... uh, The frequency of seeing one mutation show up with another mutation or not, Um, and so Alfred Sturtevant was an undergraduate at the time, and he had a whole bunch of numbers um, related to this, and they seemed to be seeing patterns in the numbers. Sturtevant described later in in the 1960s in a book called uh, *History of Genetics* that he was ignoring his homework late some night and looking at these numbers, and realized that the numbers could be expressed in a linear fashion. He could draw a line and use the numbers as distances between genes. And so he, that late that night, drew what turned out to be the first map of any genome um, of any uh, of genes in any organism. So he drew a very simple map of the Drosophila X chromosome with um, five or six traits along that, um, in the same positions that we now know from genome sequence, um, more or less the exact same positions. so it was, it was an accurate map based on the data that they had. Um, and that became a very valuable approach um, applied in many organisms. So a, a technological advance that was a, a first in fly. Um,
0: um, for those of us who uh, have not worked in a lab, uh, explain uh, this. You, I understand that you're called uh, fly pushers, uh, so, to spe- so to speak, and how that uh, you are doing uh, the research looking at these, uh, you know, very tiny insects uh, under a
1: microscope. Explain the process. Sure. So as I described, we culture them in in, uh, glass bottles or or vials with a little plug of um, cornmeal type food at the bottom. So they're living in all stages uh, in that vial. And of course, if we just uncorked that vial, they're they're simply going to fly away. So that's not so great for the genetic research. Um, So we anesthetize them. Uh, The contemporary way to do that is with carbon dioxide gas, which, um, you know, same thing if you pop open a a can of soda, that's basically what's being released. Uh, And so we apply that to the flies and it, it starves them of oxygen Enough that they essentially go to sleep or become unconscious, Uh, and then we put them under a very low power kind of student grade microscope with uh, good lights and take a look at the flies. That's um, enough to be able to tell males from females, for example. So males are a little smaller, a little darker at the abdomen in the at the posterior end, Um, and I I kind of think of this as almost like a pharmacist pushing pills around to, to. to scoop them into a bottle, so we're pushing the flies around with uh, small paintbrushes or small metal tools, uh, and or so, some folks use um, feathers uh, cut to a, a nice straight line, uh, and then we can sort them uh, in that anesthetized state, push them into a fresh food vial, and after you know 10 or 20 minutes, uh, they'll wake up again and and start the next generation. This
0: is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpa Thanchel. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Moore, lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School, author of the book, First and Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. Now, uh, we're talking with Dr. Moore because I believe uh, June 12th, Dr. Moore will be in Middletown at Wesleyan's R.J. Julia bookstore uh, for a book talk at 7 p.m. More information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Now, coming up, we'll continue our discussion. And we're going to hear from a Yukon researcher about how her lab is using fruit flies to advance research. Now, Now, Now are you one of them? You can join the conversation too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Alpathanchel. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Moore, lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School and author of the new book, First in Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. Now, Moore's new book explores how fruit fly research has expanded scientists' understanding of human health and disease. Uh, Researchers at UConn are using fruit flies in their labs. Joining me now in studio is Dr. Barbara Maloney, associate professor of molecular and cell biology and head of the genetics and genomics program at UConn, Dr. Maloney, welcome to the show. Thank you. So uh, tell us about how uh, you and uh, your fellow researchers in your lab are using fruit flies uh, in, to advance the research you're doing.
2: So our main research focus is on understanding how cells um, distribute their genetic information to their daughters when they divide, whether they're dividing to produce new cells in a tissue or whether they're producing sperm and eggs. The process of passing on the genetic information is fundamental to viability. So we're interested in understanding how these chromosomes are passed on to daughter cells during this process called cell division And in particular, we're focusing on a structure present on all chromosomes that cells use to capture chromosomes and separate copies away from one another such that the next generation will inherit the correct number of chromosomes. Now, how did you get involved in this specific research? Uh, I've been interested in understanding kind of um, genome integrity and genome organization for a long time since I was a graduate student and just uh, kind of my research led me to this point in focusing in this particular process. Uh, now, what we were hearing um, from Dr. Um, Stephanie Moore, again, she's the
0: author of this new book, First and Fly, about how the fundamental parts of f- fruit flies and humans, there are um, they're very uh, similar. So talk about why this particular insect, the fruit fly, is uh, valuable in the research you're doing. Why are they ideal candidates?
2: Certainly. So they're ideal candidates for a number of reasons, many of which Stephanie already um, described. Um, before our perspective the fact that they have a relatively small genome and only four chromosomes makes it easier to treat and to understand the changes that occur when chromosome segregation ha- is defective um, and then the structure that, are, that we focus on, the centromeres, are also smaller. And um, uh, thanks to the you know amount of genetic information and genomic information that is available, we have a lot of tools to investigate these questions in more depth than we could if we were trying to handle you know organisms which much with much more complex um, genomes. When you're um
0: working on this type of research and understanding um you know how uh, genes are created and what's happening within cells uh, for many of us who are who are not scientists, we think about some of the diseases that are out there or the cancers that are out there that affect many of us. so can you translate that for our listeners of how what you're doing in the lab will impact how we are uh, helping to treat certain diseases or find uh you know cures
2: certainly so um so any mm, time that a chromosome is missegregated, you will have an imbalanced number of chromosomes. That you, that's usually a lethal event. For example, in humans, there's only uh, very few cases of um, having an extra chromosome that are viable and, and lead to live births. Uh, so a dramatic example of seg- missegregating an entire chromosome leads to cell death most of the time. Uh, However, uh, cancer cells seem to uh, have adapted really well at dealing with imbalanced chromosome numbers and also other chromosome rearrangements that occur from breaking chromosomes and then fusing chromosomes together. And in fact, um, changes in chromosome number is one of the most uh, recognized genetic changes in tumors. Mm -hmm. So understanding how correct segregation occurs in normal cells will help us understand what is going wrong in these cells and how do they adapt to these states where this imbalanced number of genes is uh, somehow helping them proliferate even more. Uh, Dr. Moore, we heard about uh, the history of when uh, fruit flies
0: uh, were um, being seen as a vital part of of scientific research, and I'm curious how uh, drug companies today and others are are now using uh, fruit flies in their research to talk a little bit about uh, what we were mentioning with uh, Dr. Maloney about um, finding cures or specific treatments uh, to cancer.
1: Yeah, so um, there are a number of answers to that question. Uh, So we're still using fruit flies to uncover fundamental uh, information about what genes do in various contexts. Um, uh, But then they're also used as a kind of a – Uh, a tiny lab rat or a a living test tube uh, to do things like drug studies. So you can use, um, you can engineer a fly to have attributes of a particular disease. You can engineer a fly that has uh, a cancer-like state in a given organ, um, like the gut of the fly. Um, Or you can engineer them to have other types of human diseases that are associated with genetic changes. And then you can subject them to both genetic screens that identify other genes that interact um, and might be targets for drug therapies. Or you can actually do uh, drug screens with those uh, genetic model uh, uh, models of disease, and try to find compounds that might get be leads towards development of new therapeutics.
0: Uh, Dr. Maloney, uh, given all of that, um, is there a lot of dollars behind uh, this new
2: fruit fly research that's going on? D- uh, dollar uh, funding. <laughs> yes. So hopefully this will continue. Um, I think mm, the National Institute of Health has been supportive of um, drosophila research and uh, over the years has um, appreciated and supported scientists asking questions in these simple model organisms, and hopefully this will continue on in the future. I'm interested
0: uh, about the camaraderie uh, of within uh, the research community who are working on uh, this fruit fly research. How do you connect and can you describe that community for us?
2: It's a great community, and we uh, there's a Drosophila meeting that uh, happens once a year. Uh, which is a really great venue for um, established scientists as well as new scientists to make connections and create collaborations to learn about all the wonderful research that is going on. But also, um, even at Yukon, we have uh, several uh, labs that use the fruit fly for research, and we have a fly club that meets uh, twice a year, and it's a very di- scientifically diverse group of scientists, but we, we love hearing about each other's advancements and sharing uh, information and genetic tools um, among ourselves. Dr. Moore, can you add to that? Uh, sure. I would say that we've also branched out into
1: uh, new media and social media. So um, Barbara and I both have Twitter accounts, mm-hmm. and uh, there are a lot of fly biologists who connect in that way. Um, and the flies led the way um, in terms of a database of information about fly genes. So there's a database called FlyBase that's kind of a that's a go-to resource for um, Barbara and I and, and many others in the fly community for information about fly genes. Um, and that that. Um uh, database, you know, is, is the kind of culmination of a long history of sharing information, as Barbara mentioned, um, about flies and fly stocks, mutations and gene information. This
0: is where we live. Uh, Today I'm speaking with Dr. Stephanie Moore, who's the author of First and Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery, joining us from a studio at Harvard University in Cambridge. She's also a lecturer on genetics at Harvard Medical School. And in studio with me, Dr. Barbara Malone, Associate Professor of Molecular and Cell Biology and Head of the Genetics and Genomics Program at UConn. As we're learning more about the significance uh, and how valuable uh, fruit flies are in uh, advancing uh, scientific research and our understanding of uh, the functions of of human genes. You can join our conversation too, 860-275-7266. Do you remember studying fruit flies in your high school biology class? Maybe you work at a lab uh, today. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. You can join us also at Where We Live on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, now, Dr. Moore, I wanted to go back to some of the other examples you have in your book about, uh, about some of the advancements, including the toll gene. Tell us about that and how that led to Nobel Prize winning research.
1: Yeah, so Toll was identified first um, in, in Drosophila based on um, mutations that, that ga- disrupted the patterning of the fly. So, you know, it should have a head at the head end and tail at the tail end and everything organized in between. And um, the researchers identified a number of genes that were required for that proper patterning. And Toll was among them. And researchers working in that developmental stage uh, work, identified a pathway um, of, of molecules that take information from the outside of the cell and convey it within the cell. Um, so the cell um, membrane is a kind of a, a wall um, and keeps things out. Um, but uh, of course, information has to be conferred from the outside into the inside where you have the nucleus and you can turn on different genes in order to respond to some change that needs to happen in development. Um, and what Jules Hoffman and others recognized um, through work uh, taking a very different direction is that toll turns out also to be the um, receptor on the outside of the fly, of the of a fly cell or other cells uh, that receive information um, that there's um A microbial uh, pathogen in the area. So we have an ancient uh, history animals um, and plants uh, of battling against microbes like viruses and bacteria. And it turns out that this toll receptor is one of the things that recognizes this foreign information, this foreign proteins from bacteria or or, um, RNA from viruses, uh, and then communicates to the inside of the cell that the cell better mounts a response against that. Um, And again, it's very ancient. So mollusks, plants, animals all have a version of this toll now called uh, toll-like receptor uh, protein, um, involved in this, this ancient battle. So we're talking about how the immune system adapts
0: in, to avoid a f- infection from new pathogens?
1: Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. This this is we this is referred to as the innate pathway. So basically, have one arsenal of things that they can mount as responses. Um, it's different from the acquired or adaptive system that humans also have. So we have an innate immune system, um, but we also mount an acquired response uh, that uh, where you know, if you think of vaccines, right, where you have a specific thing, uh, pathogen that's that um, for which the cell actually adapts a specific antibody that's going to recognize it. So we. we... We have that acquired system, but we also have this more ancient immune system and have that in common with with other types of organisms.
0: You write in your book that uh, there have been several uh, Nobel Prizes awarded
1: uh, related to fruit fly research. Tell us about some more of them. Well, the most recent one was granted to um, Hall, Ross, Bash, and Young for their work on circadian rhythms. So um, the fruit fly. was one of the leaders in terms of understanding the genes that underlie common behaviors or simple behaviors. Uh, And one of the behaviors that is exhibited by the fly is a 24-hour cycle of uh, restfulness um, in the evening and and wakefulness during the day, uh, similar to us. Um, And those researchers uh, figured out what the molecular pathways were that control that circadian rhythm. And of course, that has all kinds of um, implications in terms of human health, as we're um, really recognizing um, in the current times, you know, how important it is to get get sleep and how sleep uh, is involved in, uh, in, in health.
0: Uh, Dr. Maloney, uh, the publicity surrounding these Nobel Prizes, how has that advanced awareness of fruit fly research?
2: I think a lot of people are starting to recognize the value of the Drosophila research and the impact they can have on human health. And uh, a lot of these studies are initially seem to be uh, specifically for the fruit fly. But then as we learn more about the same pathways in other systems, I think this becomes more and more in, um, understood by the public. Mm.
0: Now, Dr. Moore, uh, you also write in your book that you have witnessed several revolutions in biology, the Human Genome Project, CRISPR. Uh, The toolbox has grown. Uh, What does this mean for fruit flies today? You mentioned a little bit about the relevance, but let's hear more about that.
1: Well, uh, it means we have more tools <laughs> on top of a, a pretty exemplary set of ge- molecular genetic tools um, for one thing. So, so those, those advances uh, help us as well. There's a fly genome, and, and we can do CRISPR gene editing in the fly, um, uh, but it also uh has pointed to this this relevance, this uh, similarity. Um, and the human genetics and human genome information raises more questions than it does answers. Um, and so we're able to associate genes um, rapidly and in new ways uh, uh, with diseases. So there are, you know, patients who have mystery diseases and they get their genome sequence and you can identify some candidate genes. But then there may remain open questions if those genes in humans have yet to be characterized, which is true for many human genes, one then wants to get information. What does this gene do? And platforms like the um, fruit fly become a really efficient way to quickly test some of those um, activities and get a sense of, you know, is this really the mutation that's associated with the disease? So that's one of the things that um, is done in flies uh, in contemporary research uh, that's very human disease focused. Um, But then also to learn what are the cellular mechanisms that's going wrong with those diseases with the hope that the more we learn, the more likely we are to stumble upon a therapeutic treatment that either exists or can be developed.
0: Dr. Malone, you're here in studio with me again. Uh, you work at a lab at UConn, you and your uh, fellow researchers. Uh, we heard Dr. Moore say we have more tools in the toolbox. Uh, the significance of that for you moving forward?
2: It's really powerful to be able to knock down any gene of interest, either in the fruit fly itself or there's, we, we also have a tissue culture system in the fruit fly, and actually Dr. Moore is, is one of the pioneers that has developed a really amazing fly RNAi center at Harvard that any researcher can access to kind of screen genes in an unbiased fashion, looking for specific changes that, that are of interest to you. So we study centromere structure, so we've actually carried out two uh, screens uh, in collaboration with Harvard uh, where we have uh, basically down-regulated genes in an unbiased fashion throughout the genome Knowing what they are yet, and then looking for specific changes in cells, specifically for us, will be the organization of the century where it's changed and altered. Mm. Uh, Dr. Moore, I wanted to head back to you again.
0: Uh, you're joining us from a studio at, at Harvard. Uh, we've talked about the fruit fly as a model for humans, but also a good model
1: for also understanding
0: mosquito biology. Can you explain?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, you know, the fruit fly is is. I think it's fair to say, at least in terms of genetics, the best understood insect. Um, and so we can look to what relevance it might have in human health or, or other areas um, by looking at its insect cousins. Um, and so even though a fruit fly isn't a true fly, as we talked about, or excuse me, isn't a true fruit fly, yep. it is a true fly, and mosquitoes are also in that group considered true flies. Um, and mosquitoes are, of course, um, some of them and are carriers of uh, deadly diseases. And so we can use the fruit fly um, in, in a couple ways. So one is to to translate the knowledge and technologies that we develop in the fruit fly then to apply in mosquito systems for direct research in the mosquito. Um, and so there have been a number of researchers who first trained in the fruit fly and then started to either add or switch over to doing mosquito research, particularly, um, you know, as that becomes more and more relevant now. Um, and then also the kinds of things that we learn in the fruit fly then apply and teach us about the biology of mosquitoes. Uh, and then lastly, they become another platform for study. So you can take a mosquito gene that is thought to be involved in, uh, say, insecticide resistance and throw that into the fly cell or a fly, a living fly, and, and, and get some experimental data that confirms or refutes that idea that it might be responsible for resistance. So it becomes an efficient, um, you know, again, this idea of it as a kind of living test tube system for testing uh, different activities that might be true of other organisms. Who did you write your book for, Dr. Muller? Well, (laughs) um... You know, it's at some level, I would say my family. So I'm the only scientist in my family. So I feel like over the years, I've been, you know, explaining to them and reaching for the right metaphors to try to get them to understand. Um, and they were eager to understand. Um, and so in it, it some sense, it grew from that. But, you know, we also see in the in the fly community that we thought it was going to be valuable to get more and more people interested and knowledgeable about what the fly has contributed in the past and the you know, the amazing relevance it still has today. Um, as a a platform for biological discovery. Uh, So I... We were. I'm hoping to engage readers um, who w- might read the New York Times science section and, and would be curious about flies. Maybe they sorted uh, white-eyed from red-eyed flies in a school uh, lab class years ago and are interested. Um, but also to reach out to, say, medical professionals and our colleagues who work in um, human cultured cell systems so that they can get a sense of what um, this tiny fly and its its system can offer that's um, really um adds to what can be done in cultured cells, say, or um, in human genome studies.
0: Uh, Dr. Maloney here uh, with me uh, in in Hartford, Connecticut. Have there been other books like this written, or is this one of the first where you're really learning about the advancements in fruit fly research and the significance of this tiny insect?
2: I think this book is, is particularly um, important because it has this amazing um, amount of information about the history and all the kind of older experiments and kind of looking at a broader view of uh, what Drosophila has done for understanding a lot of um, important pathways in, in biology. Uh, Dr, um,
0: Dr. Moore, again, I, I'd ask you about, you know, who you wrote this book for, because also uh, you include in the uh, book uh, for the curious layperson who wants to learn more about fruit flies may
1: not be uh, working in the lab. Uh, how do they go about doing that? Um, well, you know, you can easily trap them in your kitchen. Um, so uh, we have problems with the uh, flies getting free, and so you can build a very simple trap with a bait um, in a jar, um, and just put a piece of paper in a cone with a, a hole just small enough for the flies to get through, and and you can, you know, they'll they'll find their way towards that um, bait of. Um, you know, rotting fruit or a um, little bit of wine vinegar or a splash of champagne. Um, and then all of a sudden you've got your own colony of fruit flies there. Um, so in the home, you could put, them, put that bottle onto, um, onto ice and the ice would be enough to put them to sleep. Um, you could use, a, you know, hook one of these simple microscopes that hook up to an iPhone or a computer uh, to then to take a look at some of the attributes of those flies. So it's more accessible than, other, than ever. And uh, Dr. Maloney, I'm curious
0: about uh, the young researchers that you work with at UConn. What has drawn them to this particular field?
2: I think the power of being able to um, manipulate the, f- the genome of the fly in, in a relatively uh, easy way and, and fast way is really powerful. And um, for us in particular, being able to look at uh, chromosome biology in the context of the whole organism through uh, its development and through its ability to reproduce really goes beyond uh, looking simply uh, in cultured f- in cultural cells. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really powerful. And, and I think, um, you know, students and postdocs appreciate the, the, uh, how, how much more depth they can go into understanding mechanisms by using a genetically powerful system such as flies. Mm-hmm.
0: We've been talking about uh, fruit flies uh, in general, but there's many varieties of fruit flies. (laughs) I don't know if if either uh, scientist uh, wants to talk a little bit more
1: about the different types that are out there. Uh, Dr. Moore? Uh, Well, you know, that's we're pretty myopically focused on this one species. Um, there are others who have done um, genome sequencing in for, uh, of other Drosophila species, for example, in order to learn about evolution. Um, and yeah, as, as any, anyone would be aware, there are lots of other kinds of, of flies out there and they do an, a, an amazing array of, of different things in our environments. Uh, we were um, learning a little bit,
0: again, earlier about some of the similarities by studying uh, uh, the genes specifically in fruit flies. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about, um, in your book, um, the, the mechanisms where um, the, the legs can learn to grow out of the fruit fly and how that's similar to um, the human? Um, just curious about
1: the different genotypes. Yeah. So I think you're referring to a a mutation that we call antennapedia, um, where a specific gene is disrupted and um, the antenna, rather than forming like antenna, um, they they form basically legs in that position. Um, And so we can think again about the ilus that we talked about earlier in the show. These are master control things that are, are flipping a switch to say, you know, go from this developmental program to this other developmental program and make this whole structure. So again, it was interesting information to know that a single gene can flip that switch um, that then impacts uh, the activity of many other genes. Um, And in those particular examples, um, the, the genes turned out to be arrayed along a chromosome in a particular order that reflected their positions in terms of the Anterior to posterior position of those gene expressions. So this was a really striking finding, um, and then and turned out to be true uh, in human and in human systems and other animals as well, where this organization, sort of anterior to posterior, is reflected in the organization of those genes um, along the chromosome. Uh, and it, it was, you know, again a, a striking example, a, a unique example, um, but a, a shared thing. Uh, Shared among um, animal systems, um, and it turns out that there are um, some genetic uh, disorders that disrupt similar genes um, in humans and can result in um, outcomes for those patients where their um, limb formation, for example, is um, is is has a you know a, a different look, so that the. You might get a leg like structure um, in an arm position. Um, and so the finding of that similarity um, was, you know, another, another surprise um, in some ways, but then, you know, naturally follows from the, the similarities of the genes and the gene organization. When we look
0: at contemporary research, you also talk about um, connecting the field of radiation biology. This, to me, is very interesting because we were talking about a cancer patients earlier. Can you explain that, Dr. Moore?
1: Yeah, so there's a researcher in uh, Colorado named Tintin Sue who um, has been working in the area of radiation treatment with the idea that there might be able, you might be able to use the FLY system to figure out ways that radiation treatment could be coupled with a drug to make it even more efficient at killing the cancer cells. Um, and so she's using the FLY as a system um, in order to study that both, uh, again, as Barbara was saying, you know, we can learn all kinds of things about the cellular mechanisms using the FLY. And the more we understand those cellular mechanisms, the more likely we might be able able to uh, develop a, a tailored uh, treatment, um, but she's also doing drug screens directly to see if she can find drugs that uh, enhance um, the, the killing that we see with uh, radiation therapy, uh, specifically of the cancer cells.
0: Dr. Maloney, did you want to add to that?
1: The, the, again, the example of um, the
0: connecting the field of radiation biology with medicine.
2: I'm not, I'm not uh, very familiar with the radiation biology research, but uh, the example, I'm familiar with the, the research of Ting Ting Su, of course.
0: Well, I want to thank uh, Dr. Barbara Maloney, associate professor of molecular and cell biology and head of the genetics and genomics program at UConn. Uh, Today, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Stephanie Moore um, at Harvard Medical School, author of the book First and Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. Now, have you thought about uh, the kind of research that's being done? And so many of us look at insects and we think they're pests. We want to get rid of them. But we're hoping to speak to a researcher uh, based in London that's going to talk more broadly about the benefits of these insects. So more than 120,000 species. You can join our conversation on where we live, 860 275 7266. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy nall Coming up Monday, a report by c Peggy McCarthy offers insight into trends in sickle cell diagnosis and treatment. On the next Where We Live, we'll take a closer look at the data and hear from a New Haven resident living with the disease. Plus, inside U.S. drug courts, what approach these institutions take in addressing the nation's opioid crisis. We'll find out about that on Monday. Now, today, we've been learning about the value of fruit fly research and the impact on understanding genetics and biology today Uh, with us uh, from Harvard University, a student there is uh, Dr. Stephanie Moore, author of First and Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological uh, Discovery. Now, you write in your book, uh, Dr. Moore, that uh, what makes a fly a fly. We should have probably started that with that definition earlier on, but if you could talk a little bit
1: about that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So um, th- flies are in the order diptera, so die like two, um, and terra like pterodactyl, so a winged thing. So flies have two wings, um, as opposed to most insects, most flying insects that have four wings. If you think, if you picture a, a, a dragonfly, which is not, not, a true fly. <laughs> um, you can picture the four wings um, there. So um, what flies have adapted is instead of having that second pair of wings, they have a small structure that looks kind of like a, a ball on stick or a maraca um, and acts as a, a balancing um, organ for them as they fly. So flies have a, an extra ability um, at hovering uh, and uh, navigating. Um, so I, I think of them as kind of the helicopters of the flying world as opposed to the the airplanes um, in terms of the 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 flying insect world. Mm. Uh, we're trying uh, to
0: reach a uh, British scientist, Dr. Erica McAllister, author of the new book, The Secret Life of Flies. Actually, it's been out for several months. Have you heard of this book? And what do you think of the, uh, again, this interest uh, in the public sphere, learning more about uh, these, uh, these creatures around us and the diversity of flies?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm absolutely aware of of, of that book. Um, and it's it's a, a fun read. Uh, and I, I think it's great that we have a new appreciation. So um, I think if she were joining us, one of the things she might point out is that flies are an important pollinator of flowers. Um, so we think about bees and, um, you know, most of us have a, a fondness for bees and, and their um, importance in terms of agriculture. Um, but there are a lot of things that um, a lot of plants that can be pollinated by flies in a similar fashion um, or are. And I think there are a few examples. Examples of um, plants that have a specific relationship with a specific type of fly for pollination, um, and that's just one example. Um, flies are also wonderful decomposers. So you know things die off, and we not we want things to return to the soil. Um, and um, there are flies that uh, you know uh, specialize in, in um, decomposing and, and returning uh, material uh, to the soil. And so that's uh, a huge benefit to the the cycle of um, living living things in the earth. Um, And uh, they come in all sizes as well. So the fruit fly is about, uh, what, maybe the fifth of a slide, the size of a house fly. Um, There are a few flies that are much bigger. Um, and then there are um, some flies like the forid fly that are even smaller. Um, so one of the things that's been fun for me uh, as, a post, as a postdoctoral fellow, I realized that even though I knew a lot about this one species, I didn't know much about flies in general. So um, one of the things I used to do as a postdoc was uh, you know, sneak off in the evenings to the local uh, library um, and uh, take a look at the literature in, in terms of flies more generally. Um, and so that uh, then comes out in the beginning the book when I talk about putting the, the Drosophila melanogaster in the context of of other flies um, and like as I said mosquitoes which are, are flies um, and there mosquitoes are an example, there are other kinds of biting flies as well. So um, beneficial and, and also uh, a challenge to us, depending on the species. You were talking earlier about
0: um, testing insecticide uh, resistance and by, um, uh, in, in the genes of uh, particular uh, flies. And I was thinking about uh, the Zika outbreak and, and again, uh, how a scientist can even learn you know, which things um, are able to, to, to kill off a particular type of fly. But can that also be dangerous in terms of of other flies that are that are beneficial, that are pollinators, uh, that may also be at risk uh, when these chemicals are used.
1: Uh, yeah, I think it depends very much on the specificity or not of the chemicals. Um, and I think most insecticides are, are broadly insecticides. Um, but I do, uh, I'm aware of some efforts now to try to be a little more targeted and specific, uh, both in terms of chemical insecticide treatment and in terms of using genetic to- technologies to try to either cure a specific species of mosquito of the pathogen that it's that it would transmit to humans um, or kill them off, but again, in a very targeted way. Um, and one of the most interesting ways that I know of that is being explored right now um, as a possible um, intervention, if you will, of mosquitoes is uh, stems from Drosophila research about a bacteria that lives inside of Drosophila cells or can live that way, um, and that bacteria wants to fend off viral invaders, um, and so it does that to the benefit of the fly, essentially. Um, uh, and that bacteria can then be tra- can also be transferred to other insects, um, and it naturally occurs um, in it's na- found naturally in, uh, in many insects um, in the wild. And the bacteria then might be a means to fight off um, viruses um, like Zika um, that would be a threat to humans. Um, So there are some controlled tests right now of using Wolbachia, that's the name of the bacteria, introducing it into mosquito populations with the idea that the Wolbachia bacteria will do the work of fighting off the viral infection and that that could have a positive impact in terms of reducing um, infections of humans. So, you know, fascinating stuff um, involving multiple organisms, species interacting with one another.
0: I'm happy to report that uh, we've been able to reach Dr. Erica McAllister, who again is author of the book, The Secret Life of Flies. Dr. McAllister, can you hear us? Hello.
3: <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh,
0: no problem. Uh, we only have just a few minutes, what we were talking about um, just uh, the wealth of information we've been learning about the significance uh, uh, with, of the fruit fly. But your book talks about the many different fly species out there. What made you write this book? Um,
3: and pretty much exactly the same that the other author gave is that I just wanted to communicate what we were doing and how much we know and how little we know. So, a lot of people know about Drosophila and a lot of people know about mosquitoes, but they don't know about everything else. And there's so much information and so much fun information about flies. I just wanted to get this through to people.
0: Uh, we were learning um, about uh, the different types of, of flies uh, with Dr. Moore, but I'm curious when when we think of flies, we often think of pests, but you mentioned that there's so many benefits. Can you give oh, us yeah. some examples, especially for people who like chocolate? Exactly. I mean,
3: I'm one of these people that absolutely hates chocolate, so the, it's not lost on me that most of the pollinators of chocolate are the midges. They're tiny biting flies everybody hates. Many of those are males that, that don't bite, and they're the actual pollinators of the chocolate plant. And the chocolate plant, I describe it as like the panda of the plant world. It's absolutely terrible at reproducing. So, it has a very low natural rate. And it needs these absolutely minuscule little flies to be able to get into its really complicated innards to be able to pollinate for us. Uh,
0: when we were looking and we were watching a video of you uh, earlier, and you were talking about the robber fly. This might love be. Them. This might, they, people might think that's kind of a monstrous fly. Just describe the fly for us, uh, if you will. Well, it
3: is It is an absolute beast of a fly. These are, <laughs> these are some of the, arguably, some of the top predators. I mean, they can take on things twice their size, if not more. They can take on vertebrates, which is quite exciting. And these flies are highly venomous. So we've only just started looking at the venomics associated with these. Recent work is showing that their venom is completely different to all the other venoms we know. So they're active flyers, they're active hunters, and they're just vicious little predators. So I think they're amazing. <laughs>
0: So We've been learning about the significance of fruit flies in research, we've been learning that uh, flies uh, are pollinators, some of them are predators like the robber fly, Uh, but also are you worried about the future of flies? Are they at risk when we look at our our, uh, changing uh, warmer temperatures and uh, just with climate change in general?
3: Yeah, I mean we're actually now beginning to get empirical evidence about this massive drop off in insect populations. Everyone's really concerned about the bees, especially the honeybees, but, you know, arguably flies are equally important as pollinators in many different ecosystems. And we know that if the bees are going to go, then the flies are obviously going to go. And and this is a real concern to us, considering how much of the food we we depend on the flies to give us.
0: Uh, when we look at the very many different species of flies, we know which ones are more at rat- risk than others? No. We have an inkling of
3: some of them. The ones that are very specialist, they're always going to be the ones impacted first. And the ones that people don't like, the um, Aedes mosquitoes or the the mustard, the houseflies, they seem to be way more adaptable. So their populations may increase with um, global warming and land use changes going on, whereas the really important small specialists are the ones that are going to die out.
0: Well, hopefully we've piqued our listeners' interest to pick up uh, this really fascinating book, The Secret Life of Flies, uh, by author Dr. Erica McAllister, senior curator of flies at the Natural History Museum in London. Um, Sorry we weren't able to speak to you longer, but we appreciate your time. Also, Dr. Stephanie Moore, who wrote the book First in Fly, Drosophila Research and Biological Discovery. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff and Kion Wolf. This is where we live.